Hello and welcome to the final edition of the Media Sport podcast series for 2015. I'm Brett Hutchins and I've recently returned from Scotland, where I was fortunate enough to spend three weeks conducting research at the University of Glasgow. Thanks to Raymond Boyle for an enjoyable period of collaboration. Thanks also to Stuart Allen, Simon Cottle and the School of Journalism, Media and Cultural Studies at Cardiff University for inviting me to deliver a paper in their research seminar series, as well as putting me up in a particularly nice hotel. Today, we're speaking about digital media and sport history. The first guest is a good friend and former teacher of mine, Murray Phillips, who is a sports historian in the School of Human Movement and Nutrition Sciences at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. Alongside Murray is a new friend, Gary Osmond, also a sports historian in the same school. Together and individually, they have researched extensively in the areas of sport history and historiography. Murray is the author and an editor of several books, including Examining Sport Histories, Power, Paradigms and Reflexivity, edited with Richard Pringle, and Deconstructing Sport History, A Postmodern Analysis, published by the State University of New York Press. Gary has also published widely on topics such as aquatic sport, sporting myths and racial stereotypes, including an important book co-authored with Matthew Klugman, Black and Proud, The Story of an Iconic Photo, a book that examines a pivotal moment in the history of sport and race in Australia. Today I'm speaking with Gary and Murray about their new international edited collection, Sport History in the Digital Age, published by University of Illinois Press. It's a book that asks readers to consider the many issues, opportunities and challenges presented by digital and online media for communicating the past, preserving and circulating the raw material used to write history, the stories, records, images and data, as well as the philosophical, methodological and ethical questions posed by digital tools and the internet for sport historians. Organised into three parts, topics covered across its ten chapters include the significance of the digital humanities, the uses and limits of digital archives, social media as a research tool, online fan sites as a resource as well as blogs, and online memorials to deceased sporting heroes. I like this book for a number of reasons, but especially because it forces reflection on the growing interpenetration of online media and our understanding of the past and the political, social and cultural consequences that flow from it. It represents an important intervention into the ways history is thought about and written, as well as the changes in how it is read and experienced in the digital age. Gary and Murray, thank you for taking the time to speak with me for the Media Sport podcast series. Thank you, Brett. Hi, Brett. What prompted the decision to produce the book? Where did it come from? Uh, hi, Brett. Uh, this project has uh, uh, has a few a few gestations, I guess. It started with a, a small research project that Murray and I did five or six years ago, looking at the ways that social media could be used to influence memories of the sporting past. And specifically, we were looking at the documentary film Salute, about Peter Norman's role in the 1968 Black Power um, protest. And we were interested in how the producers of that documentary were able to help shape understandings and meanings of the film through social media. And we, we then began speaking with colleagues at sport history conferences and realized there was an interest in these sorts of digital sport history topics, but no one 
uh, but no one was doing any uh, any research in this area. So we then approached a, a group of people and asked if they'd be interested in joining us on this project, and uh, we were delighted with the level of interest and delighted with uh, the product. Yeah, I must admit it's a very nicely produced book, as well as having some you know some very engaging content. Just actually for our international listeners um, in the US, UK, Asia, and elsewhere. Just give us a little bit of background on Peter Norman. I mean, he, he's actually a very significant figure for anyone who knows him, but, you know, what's his relationship to the Black Power Salute? Peter Norman was an Australian sprinter who, uh, perhaps surprisingly, uh, won silver medal in the 200 metres uh, at Mexico City. Uh, Tommy Smith, uh, the American sprinter, won gold. Peter Norman beat um, John Carlos. And what, uh, what surprised the public, I guess, was the, the protest that these athletes mounted on the medal dais. So Smith and Carlos uh, raised their hands in a Black Power salute. Uh, Norman didn't raise his arm, but he did wear uh, a badge promoting the Olympic Project for Human Rights. So he, uh, he was fully aware of what was happening behind him on the dais and fully supportive of that. So he was a key player in that protest and uh, became a, a good mate of uh, both Smith and Carlos mm. and, is, uh, and is greatly remembered for his role in that protest. And Salute was the, uh, the film produced from it, is that correct? Yes, Salute was a film made uh, maybe six or seven years ago now documenting Norman's role in this. So many Australians had forgotten Norman in that 45 year period and many people worldwide didn't realise Norman's role in the um, in the protest and his ongoing friendship with Smith and Carlos in the decades afterwards. The introduction to the book's titled "The Bones of Digital History" and it, it starts with a story about a tender circulated internationally by the Australian Paralympic Committee to write their history. Why does or why do you begin the book with an account of this tender process? What's what's the significance in terms of what the book's trying to achieve? Well, it was a really significant moment in both Gary and my kind of approach to history. We, we were asked to tender for a history of the Australian Paralympic Movement, which is the organisation that represents Paralympic athletes in international competition. And uh, what the Paralympic Committee wanted wasn't a traditional history. Uh, they were saying there's a lot of value uh, in um, a traditional history in terms of a hard copy book. But what they were primarily after was other forms of connecting with their communities and using history as a way of doing that. So what they asked essentially was, can you write history that has a traditional mode in terms of a hard copy book, but use the digital world and the digital media and digital forms of communication to engage with a different audience, perhaps a wider audience, an audience that's going to connect uh, other than traditional ways. And after a series of discussions that range from how we can do history in the contemporary world, we connected with um, Wikimedia Australia, which is the national body that runs controls media in Australia. And we looked at the way in which we could uh, use Wikipedia as, as a form of communication, as a form of dissemination, a form of analysis of some of the high-profile moments, people, coaches, athletes, and organisations in the parent. So essentially there was a governing body that 
was asking us to do history in a different way. And it made us think about uh, the kind of modes of communication that traditional history uses, which is the hard copy book for a, a readership. And we looked at the way in which uh, Wikipedia connects with a certain audience. And it was a way of creating a community of uh, volunteers involved in the project. And we also looked at the way in which we could merge a traditional history with an electronic history. So how can we take what is a traditional form of history into the digital age by putting it up on uh, on the web and on the, uh, for access for, for a broader audience? So it was a really interesting challenge that was posed to us and uh, made us think critically and reflect about the way in which history is produced. How has it gone about changing the ways you approach either thinking about history or, or, or sort of constructing it in your research at this moment? Well, in lots of ways, uh, traditional history is usually carried out by a single author or maybe two collaborators. Uh, you work together on a manuscript that's uh, crafted, sent out to reviewers, uh, it's recrafted and then published. That's the traditional mode. Where this has changed it is made us think about, well, okay, if we're going to actually interact with wider communities, then the whole concept of authorship changes. Wikipedia pages are created by everybody, uh, all those who contribute to Wikipedia. So we really have to think, rethink the way in which authorship works. And that was kind of one of the key issues that emerged really early on. Uh, and then the other ways it really changed was, well, what do we own as academics? In a, an online world in which publishing is different, in which authorship is different, in which contribution is different, how do we then reconcile working in an academic environment but communicating in a public way in terms of our histories? I think too, Brett, uh, if I could just continue there, it's probably the, the collaborative experience of producing this book with the, um, with the contributors, the chapter contributors. Has, uh, has opened up new directions for us in terms of using digital tools and digital history approaches, uh, you know, across all all of the three sort of structural um, uh, components of the book. So it's it's helped us look at using digitized archives or traditional archives differently, uh, extending the work we've done on social media, and also looking at perhaps bigger projects, ways like the uh, the Australian Paralympic project is involving uh, multiple digital platforms and approaches, both for research and analysis and for the presentation uh, of the work. So it's actually been really useful uh, from a personal perspective in terms of shaping our, our research as well. My next question really probably starts with the response among historians. Am I correct to assume there's a range of responses to the, the notion of digital sports history? I can imagine ranging from, I suppose, the techno-utopian to the, um, I suppose, almost curmudgeonly, you know, in terms of resistance. I mean, what, what's been the responses to the sort of ideas you're playing with? Well, I think you're spot on, but I think there has been a real range. There are some people who, while they engage with the digital world in their personal lives, really haven't seen how that crosses over into their professional academic worlds. So there is a really conservative hump particularly in history, perhaps more conservative than the broader um, humanities in general. Uh, and for those people, it really hasn't changed a lot of what they what they do in, in their professional world. 
But then there are other historians who are really open-minded about the ways in which the digital world can transform not only the research process, but the products you create. So there is a real span between that. And I would see that, in general, the sport historians are really quite conservative. Uh, and they think it's kind of interesting that we're looking at this stuff because they've come across it in various ways, whether it's certain research tools or if it's them communicating in their own personal lives. But ultimately, they, they don't see um, history changing that much. So in that sense, the book actually represents something really quite different and challenging for them. And I think the responses range from, oh, yeah, nice read, uh, but really doesn't matter to, wow, okay, I can see where this goes. And I think it'll be really up to the individual sport historian. And I'm thinking about where the sources of renewal in disciplines and perspectives comes from. Are you seeing shifts among, I suppose, youngest, younger historians in the postgraduate community? I mean, where, where are the green shoots appearing? Yeah, I think I, yeah, I, I certainly think uh, there's been a more favourable, more enthusiastic response from the younger scholars, especially the grad students or the recent recent graduates. You know, these are students who have uh, who are first of all are tech savvy and have grown up in a digital world and are familiar with uh, with computers at the very least, but also some of the the search engines, some of the uh, platforms for presenting histories in new ways, and are more open to collaborative approaches. Uh, publish online, they blog, they do all those things. Uh, you know, and I think there, there's been a great, a great warmth to the book, really. Uh, you know, and I, and I think it's that next generation that will be key to uh, developing uh, digital strategies or digital histories, new ways of approaching sport history. And I, I agree with uh, Gary that I think the younger scholars are the ones that go, yeah, look, we're doing this stuff. This is part of our world, and so they've engaged with it pretty, um, pretty quickly, I think. Yeah, and the more conservative historians, though, I think they see it as a threat in lots of ways, and they also see it in the continuity of all the changes that have occurred over history over the last couple of decades. So whether it's a literary turn or the postmodern turn, the digital turn, I think the, the feedback I'm getting is, well, is this just another example of the way in which history changes and history seems to find a balance through all this. So there's a real conservative group going, well, this is just another way in which, um, way in which history is changing and um, we engage with it at the appropriate levels that works for us. It's, it's not all green fields at the same time for younger scholars. I mean, we do, when we talk at conferences to, to other uh, sport historians, they talk about um, some of the pressures from within institutions. You know, they're, they're on tenure track, so they don't want to, deviating too much from the academic uh, norms and standards. So, you know, finding acceptance of some new methods, uh, new platforms of uh, sharing and disseminating material can be can be difficult. I mean, all sport historians, I guess, use digital tools and digital history techniques to limited extents, at the very least using searchable newspaper databases, for example, like Trove here in Australia or the Library of Congress newspapers in the United States. But beyond that, uh, there hasn't been a great take-up of some of the more radical ideas that we raise, at least towards the end of the book. Uh, big collaborative ventures, sport historians working with software engineers, with programmers, etc., to develop uh, you know, uh, 
uh, new, completely new conceptualizations and presentations. And those are the things I think there's a great excitement, including, uh, you know, here, including with us, but uh, there are limitations imposed by cost, technical knowledge, uh, and sometimes university or department support and expectations. So those are the things we hear back from younger scholars. Are there any areas or particular areas or topics of sport history or history more generally that are particularly well suited to the sort of new ways of you know representing and doing history there are Brett. there are there are hosts that actually seem to engage with it really quite well i can think of newspaper research where we used to just plow through years of microfilm um get our eyes in uh and now we've switched to much more sophisticated digital reading of these sources uh, from a distance. So, you know, we've, we've employed these data mining techniques now. We've engaged with distant reading as a way to really re-engage with newspaper research and other forms of printed copy research in really quite sophisticated and different ways. And I think that is changing the research landscape really quite quickly. And I also think there are other ways in which the digital world is uh, engaging with history. And I'm thinking here of uh, digital information systems. So the way in which now uh, GIS is using geography, time, and documents to allow historians to focus on space and the way in which space can tell us stories about history. So we've got some projects now where we're mapping sporting participation historically and, and we're using those GIS maps to frame new research questions, to understand the data in different kinds of ways and to write now papers that are actually primarily driven by these digital uh, resources and uh, findings. Hmm. Just for those who, who aren't aware of what GIS stands for, GIS stands for Geospatial Information Systems, and essentially it's a digital form of map making. Mm. And what it allows you to do is to translate essentially non-spatial items, things like documents, parliamentary records, uh, minute books and so on, into a spatial dynamic. And then once it's on the digital map, which is very similar to a kind of Google map that you'd use to get to the local restaurant, um, you can ask... Uh, questions of scholarship in relation to the way in which that data is reconfigured. So you can reconfigure the data along temporal lines, along gender lines, along spatial lines, uh, and that can enable you to ask different kinds of questions. Those questions might include things like, how can we look at the data to analyse space? How can we look at it to analyse gender? Can we look at it in terms of different sporting events and spectatorship? And so on. So it, GIS opens a whole host of questions and issues um, that historians may not uh, may not have addressed previously. Because by prioritising space, we really get a sense that um, historians now want to engage with spatial history in a new kind of way that engages with the digital world. And uh, these sorts of issues, you know, and, and indeed the content of the books speaks to the digital humanities, of course, and then the connections of the digital humanities with the, the discipline of history. What's at stake in sort of deciding how we should do these things? Well, 
in, in many ways, the digital humanities is the external force to history, which provides a whole host of really interesting innovations in the digital world that's made us rethink <coughs> excuse me, the historical process. And one of the key things about this, and one of the things that I think is most enjoyable is it gets historians out of their offices and out of the archives to engage with scholars in different fields who are using digital technologies. So for us, it means that we're going to talk to people in geography or cultural studies, or we're talking to people who have um, in literary studies who are all over uh, Moretti's work on um, distant reading. So one of the really positive things for this is the way it's been a kind of synergistic relationship between what we've done traditionally and now what we're doing in a much broader context with larger disciplines. And I think for me that's been one of the most enjoyable things, realising that, that as a traditional historian I may have worked on my own or with Gary or with another collaborator. Now I'm engaging with a whole host of different people in different disciplines who all bring to the table something unique and different which helps create a really interesting product. Looking at Chapter 5 of the collection by Tara Magdalinsky, uh, how are these issues being worked through in the classroom? I mean, it, you know, teaching ob obviously being an important way of both communicating research but thinking through ideas. I mean, she writes about the use of blogs, wikis and social medias. How are these tools you know, changing the teaching of sport histories and, and what are the challenges of using them effectively? I think that's a really interesting question, but and one of the things that you know it crosses so many discipline boundaries here. I mean, the way in which teaching is changing now is when we engage with the digital world, we're using digital techniques to engage our students on our classes. You know, we're using word clouds, we're using kind of polling exercises where students can use their digital phones to, to respond to questions and so on. So, so at a kind of meta level, the way in which we teach now is really uh, uh, digitally driven and we're talking to digital natives uh, and this all makes sense to them and uh, it, I think it's been an incredibly innovative way of communicating with students. Um, in terms of our specific course content, we, we do in our courses, we have whole sections now on uh, digital history. So we're talking to students about the way in which uh, as historians, we've engaged with the digital world and we're actually getting them to do the same kind of thing. So we've run tutorials in the last semester on Wikipedia where we've got students to actually create pages uh, around specific topics and then we've critiqued those pages and we've got the students to reflect on the way in which history is created through Wikipedia and we're getting them to, uh, to, to compare and contrast the way in which traditional history has created knowledge and the way in which Wikipedia is creating knowledge. So um, in our sport history courses, students, and, and they really engage with this stuff, this is talking their language, this is talking their world. So when you start to engage them in this process, they feel like whatever the content material is, we're engaging with them on the same page as it was. A final question that I ask all my guests, what research projects are you working on at the moment and what can we look forward to over the next couple of years? a couple of interesting ones. Uh, a lot of our research has been in indigenous communities uh, and we're working at the moment in Sherbrooke which is just northwest of Brisbane and one of the projects is looking at the way of, the way in which we can look at sporting activities to understand uh, the life for Sherbrooke uh, people. 
from you know the early 1900s through to uh, when Cherbourg started to get some independence in the 1960s. And the way in which we're doing it, if we were, if we were doing it traditionally, we'd be looking at the sources, we'd be writing um, uh, our narrative based on our interpretation of, of sources. What we're doing in this case is we're actually using a, a geospatial map and we're mapping the ways in which uh, participants were given more opportunities over that 60 odd years and we're reading the spatial patterns and movements of these uh, participants and athletes to get a better understanding of the way in which the superintendents and the administrative structure of Sherberg, uh, their views of Indigenous people changed over time. And we're also using that geospatial map to get a sense of what sport meant for Indigenous people and how that helped shape identity, particularly in a community like Sherberg, which was essentially a community that was forced together upon 30-odd tribes throughout Queensland. And how sport actually helped to create a, what they call a one-tribe identity in Sherbourg. So that's one of the projects we're, that we're working on at the moment. And one we've just finished too also looked at a, a newspaper readings uh, through Trove. And we looked at, at mapping uh, early women's surfing and we looked at uh, distant reading of newspapers to uncover some interesting stories about early female service in the Australian context. And through the digital forms, which we could never have done uh, in the old traditional mode, was we found uh, a new contributor to uh, surfing uh, in the Australian context from a female perspective. So it opened up news, new ways of thinking and writing about early Australian women surfing. Currently, I've just started working on a project uh, involving Twitter and sport history, and specifically looking at the social memory of, uh, of former athletes on Twitter, and specifically on uh, the ways that uh, gay and lesbian athletes, prominent athletes who came out in the past, so people in the, say, 20 years ago, the Ian Roberts, the Dave Copes, the Martina Navratilovas, of the sporting world, how their um, how their experience as gay and lesbian athletes uh, is referred to, and how their memory is perpetuated on Twitter uh, today when uh, younger athletes come out, for example, and to look at the impact of that particular social media uh, on their historical representation. Now, what what digital sport history can do is it can allow us to continue traditional projects. So this women's surfing project was something that could have been done in theory using old newspapers or microfilm. It just would have been tedious and no one ever would have done it. But it's a sort of uh, project that could have been done. So it's a continuation of a traditional, uh, a traditional approach in one sense. Whereas these other two projects, the digital map of um, Aboriginal sporting movements in Queensland and gay athletes on Twitter, I mean, these are, these are new directions that uh, digital sport history uh, offer us. It is, are the digital tools just another way of doing what we did previously more efficiently or even opening up new questions and new research modes or is it far more significant than that and that it is fundamentally going to change the way in which history is done from a research perspective, from a writing perspective and from a presentation perspective.
And that's a fundamental question that I think is going to be addressed over the next couple of decades. It's the key question in, in the digital humanities and it crosses over just directly to sport history and history more broadly. Murray and Gary, thanks for joining me on the Media Sport Podcast Series. I wish you both a safe and enjoyable festive season. Thank you, Brett. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks, Brett.